Welcome into this Five Clubs conversation. I'm Gary Williams. You know, media has become very fragmented, but rarely does a text chain become a media entity that has relevancy to the level of getting commercials and agent representation and recognition from everybody in the industry in which they decide to reside. Well, that is the case with No Laying Up. They started in 2013 as just a collection of friends who wanted to take a text chain and turn it into a Twitter account. Now it's become, you know, a bona fide media entity and everybody reacts to it. Many people reference it. And the guy who founded it is Chris Solomon. And Chris, along with the other guys who are part of No Laying Up, have created multiple series. And I've never really had a chance to chat with him. But I'm getting ready to on this Five Clubs conversation. We bring in the founder. I could say co-founder, but I think he's the founder of No Laying Up, Chris Solomon. Solly, how you doing? I'm doing great. Co-founder is much, much better of a term. Trust me on that one. It, uh, uh, but yeah, thanks for having me. Listen, I, I want to create friction between you guys. There's never enough. <laughs> try to break us up. I, I, everyone's trying to do it. I see what you're trying to do. There's enough friction going on in the golf world right now. Come on. No, that's true. My God, for you guys... Um, and look, I know you don't want to just be bathing uh, in all this acrimony, but it is pretty remarkable that this year is kind of started the way that it is and how you guys kind of parse out what you decide to, to dive into on a Sunday night because it's been limitless. You know, it's, it's, I, I, I'm trying to figure out where, you know, you, you don't know it when you're in it, but are you standing at a very interesting time in history or is this going to be a footnote, right? Are we, you know, not to make it like, uh, make it way more serious than it is or make a war analogies, but like the things leading up to a huge conflict in, in you, you know, could be false alarms, but it could be like, hey, these are the signs of something like the warning signs of this happening. You know, that's the current phase we're in. It's like, I, I don't know what's going to happen. I really don't know what's going to happen. But it certainly seems like if, if there was something huge going to happen, all the things that have happened over the last two years probably are indicators of that. And, you know, it's like you don't build up troops that you, you can't invade Ukraine without building up <laughs> troops at the border. Right. And, and in the golf world, it feels like the troops are at the border, whether or not it means that they're going to invade, you know, or not. If I could use that analogy, we will we'll see on that one. But it's the signs are there and the alarm bells should be going off for pretty much everybody. Yeah, it's funny. I, I ask every player and it look, it's it. I don't know. Is there a subconscious intent on my part to get them to say something? Yeah, I suppose. But I really am curious because these guys all come from different viewpoints. Some, I think, are more invested uh, intellectually and emotionally uh, based on conversations that they've had. I do think this, um, that the inflection point, I think the players will be an inflection point because undoubtedly, Chris, all these guys are going to sit in a media room owned by the entity with which they are, they are, you know, the commodity, and, and they're going to be asked about something that makes everybody on that property really uncomfortable. But it's going to happen, don't you think? I would hope so. I mean, I, I don't like – a part of my job that I don't like is – 
being is saying like, hey, these players need to be asked about that because that part of my job is asking players that, right? But we're we're not journalists. We we're we're golf fans that we do our best to be independent and all that good stuff. But like I think there is a, you know, there are people's jobs who have to go into the media room and face guys and ask difficult questions in, in, in a spot they don't want to be asked. I thought, you know, when Tiger Woods was speaking for the first time, I, I was pretty critical of the golf media. I hate using that phrase sure. for not asking about the accident. Like we don't have the information about the accident. Right. And I could have gone down there and I could have tried to ask that question as well. Like I, so I, I, I share some of that blame, but it does seem like there are going to, there's going to have to be a time when guys are, you know what, as I say that, I take it back like at least a little bit. I feel like there have been people that have gone straight up with cameras on to players and asked them to comment on the current situation. And a lot of guys have, and they've said a lot of very silly things, I think. It's a uh, very difficult thing to justify. I think, you know, uh, to give Jason Kokrak a bit of credit on your show, he was pretty upfront about almost everything about it to say, look, it's a huge pile of money and that's what I'm here to do. And like, I at least appreciate the honesty. I don't appreciate a lot of the answers that come with, you know, we're trying to grow the game or, you know, I'm not a politician or any of that stuff. Like it's just deflecting, like, just say what you want. Like say you want to take a bunch of money to go play, you know, a different style of golf, but you know, we know why people don't do that. So yeah, the, the upcoming week, weeks, months, whatever's going to happen. I, I don't know if we're going to see Bryson there. I don't know if we're going to see Phil there. It's, it. uh, it's a it's a weird weird time period it's going to be a little bit awkward here in the coming weeks if they if they do or they don't i think it does have an effect on the the overall you know i i struggle with legacy first of all the the definition of legacy is really not the application of what we we mostly in sports media uh kind of put on it uh but nonetheless if, if phil takes the money is he soiled forever if he's going to burn down every relationship on the way out the door, block the thousands of endearing fans that have followed him for 30 plus years, um, you know, burn down every relationship at the tour. If he's not already done that, like, like he is currently doing in the last several weeks, I think so. Um, I think there's a, a way this could have gone to say like, look, I'm at a point in my career where I have an opportunity to earn a lot more money playing somewhere else than I would if I was currently competing under the current system of this PGA Tour and the Champions Tour, and I'm going to take that opportunity. I was still had a problem with that, but I think that would have gone a lot smoother than this route of saying the tour is obnoxiously greedy. The tour, <laughs> he give, giving the tour a personality, like the tour is the players, like they're, he made it sound like, you know, the PGA tour and Jay Monahan and all the executives are hoarding tons and tons of money and not paying the players, which listen, we have a lot of issues with the way the tour yep. operates from an entertainment standpoint. But one thing I don't have an issue from where I'm sitting, I don't have an issue with how the money's getting distributed to players. Like it's a, it's a charitable organization. It's a 501 C six. Like we, we said the same thing last night on our show it was like, say like, say what you really mean say we shouldn't be giving as much money to charities like say that and see how that goes over like you're trying he's trying to portray this thing he said this on your show too you know that the pga tour only pays 26 percent of its revenue to the players like that's just false like yeah. that's just not like he's just grasping at straws and it's sad to watch and I, I think he thinks this is going to work on people and that he's a better politician than he is. And a lot of people can see through this for what it is. And the irony is it it's the phrase that he used. It's obnoxious greed. And I get a lot of people that say to me, you would take this money to go play. You would do this. You would do this. First of all, you don't know whether or not I would. Second of all, like I, I'm not sitting on a hundred million in on course earnings that we know of for, like, like Phil Mickelson is. 
That's not to say he's managed his money well over the years or any of that, but it's, it's, it's an apples and oranges situation. And it's really hard to, to look and say at this guy that has been one of the most marketable guys in golf and has been the second highest earner in PGA tour history to like, say he's getting shortchanged in some way. He has said himself, no one has benefited more from the tiger woods era than he did. Those are his words. And now he's turning around and crying foul. Like that he's not being where he keeps alluring, alluding to, the stuff that has happened behind the scenes. And I, I want him to tell us what that is because whatever he's putting out right now is not adding up. You know, when you go back, Chris, to that other, to the, to the other group that had the concept as well. And I remember having this conversation at golf channel and I, I did a, I didn't do a good enough job. I wasn't pragmatic enough about the conversation uh, about, you know, the plausibility of it. You guys were, were critical of, of some of the conversations we had, and I'm okay with that. I mean, it's like, do we do a good enough job? If this was the other group and the money was the same, which would be really hard, that, that's, it's hard uh, to create that simulation because the money cannot be the same as the Saudi money. Right. But, but if it was reasonably close, if the money grab was similar, but the organization was just a guys who a bunch of guys who were inclined to to want to create something that they thought was digestible by a lot of people who love golf. Would we be reacting totally different? Personally, I would. Um, and, and for those that aren't familiar, the this this idea or this this thought of the Premier Golf League. Yeah. The the organization was founded back in I think 2014. It's an idea that has percolated and sat around and built up slowly over the years. And finally, word kind of got out about it publicly in tw around 2020, if I remember right. And it came from a group of guys, and we got we were fortunate enough to sit with the yeah. guys that started the league maybe two years ago, actually, ironically, at the players, and just chatted them, because like, we were critical of the idea to begin with. It kind of sounded, it, it sounded a little bit, um, I don't know. It, it didn't sound that appealing until you, we talked for three hours with them, and they explained... I wasn't into Formula One yet. I didn't understand the yeah. team concept. I didn't understand that. Just I couldn't picture a golf world that was presented in teams and, and, and things like that. And the more I talked to these guys, the more it was kind of like, man, uh, where we like to think we are in terms of trying to improve the entertainment aspect of golf, these guys are on a whole nother level. They're actively working on a way to like, hey, what if we changed up the whole format, right? We know golf as an event where – 156 guys go tee it up and you are rewarded for what you finish in the tournament. And like, that has been what we know. And it's, it's hard to think outside the box of something different. So they came up with this idea. They've raised a bunch of money. You know, they, they encountered this issue, a couple issues along the way. One of which some of the money that they raised was from the Saudi invest, the public investment fund of Saudi Arabia. It got portrayed in the media by myself included as all of the money coming from that or a large portion coming right. from that. They got a lot of bad press, a lot of uh, the early messaging for that league was not handled very well um, from their end, the, from the PR perspective. Now, in their defense, they weren't really necessarily looking to get that message out. It kind of leaked out earlier than they were ready for. But the word gets around. Rory says some things. I don't really like where the money's coming from. It was really only 5%, but they kind of looked at that and said, okay, we see the issue here. We probably shouldn't have done this. Let's divest from this 5% or whatever that would be from the Saudis and let's continue on. Saudis took that a little bit personally. From what I understand, they said, okay, well, we know this league concept. Let's copy it. And we don't have to make the business work. We have $3 billion sitting right here, just earmarked for this, this league that we can start up. And for the guys that started the premier golf, like they do have to make it make business sense. Right. And so that's where they have lost a ton of ground in terms of they are in this position now where, you know, they may have divested some of the money, but 
another one of the issues they had and the, an issue that the Saudi Golf League still has to clear is how do you get 48 guys or whatever it is to jump ship all at the same time? It's the chicken and the egg problem, as Andy Gardner from the Premier Golf League called it. Um, and the, the Premier Golf League has shifted away from their original model of trying to get guys to jump ship to trying to work with the PGA Tour to set up some sort of circuit, some sort of leagues that in which the players would have equity in this Premier Golf League, but it would, you know, and it, they're, they're, I think they're struggling to get momentum going, but I'm wondering if this huge threat that is the Saudi Golf League is now going to force the tour to take a certain kind of action in which Andy Gardner on our podcast, and I'm sorry, this is a, a rambling, rambling answer here, but he uh, on our podcast put a call out to Rory to say like, hey, you know, we as the, as the director of the pack, you need to get this information in front of your players to see if this is of interest. And Rory came on our podcast a few weeks later yeah. and said something to the same vein of we need to get these guys in a room. We need to hear them out. And so I don't know where things stand in that regard. I think there is still a chance that things can develop on the PGA tour side of the house. If you will, this premier golf league, if they are to form an alliance, I think it's maybe 0.5 of 1% along the way there, if it was to happen, but it, uh, to answer your original question on it, would I view it differently? I would because I think it is. I hate to, you know, sound like we're on The Bachelor. I think it's done for the right reasons. Like I think it is, <laughs> you know, with the golf fan in mind of how can we make this sport more entertaining for golf fans and at the same time handsomely reward the players. I think anytime the money is as as big as they're talking, they're talking about an equity stake of maybe ten billion dollars in their league. I don't know how they get there. I don't know how to audit that number. Um, it's still less than the digital assets that uh, Phil Mickelson says the PGA tour has, which is 20 billion. Uh, I don't know how we get there, but at least it's, it's, it's done with um, a ton, a ton, a ton of thought behind how this would be presented to fans. And I don't get that sense from the Saudi golf league. I don't know if you feel differently, but this feels very much like with a very, very, very different goal in mind, which is a tournament that's being thrown around a lot, which is sports washing a, 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 a very poor human rights record in that country. So uh, long, long answer to say, yes, I would feel very differently if it was uh, a different group of people kind of funding this thing. Do you think that the PGA Tour over, over the last 12, 16, 18 months in terms of the way they've reacted, and they don't like to share. They don't like to share information. They don't like to talk about uh, the, the players. I think that they, you know, against what Charlie Hoffman had to say, and again, Charlie, everyone took a pound of flesh out of him over the weekend. Um, I think that they go out of their way to protect their, their product uh, to the point that it, it, it really, and hopefully this Netflix series, they give them the autonomy. You had the guys on it, and I'm encouraged by what those guys had to say. Very encouraged. Do you think the Tories reacted well over the last year and a half to all of this? I, uh, it's a tough one because I think what the, what is going on on the PGA tour is um, it, it. And if you go back in history, we did a podcast several months ago about the, uh, the breakaway aspects of the, of prior tours, right? The 1968 formation of the PGA tour, a potential breakaway in 1983. And then Greg Norman's world tour in 1994 revisited those topics, learned about them. I I'd never, you know, I'd heard about them. but wasn't familiar and it reminds me a lot of what I learned about 1983, which is Jack Nicholas basically tried to stage a coup against Dean Beeman, the commissioner of the PGA Tour, to say, like, these guys are spending too much money and effort on marketing, on their, you know, the, the golf course design. They're doing all these things, and they're not, they do not, uh, that's against the mandate of the PGA Tour. 
and they went back in the archives and the mandate of the PGA tour and said, that's here's one through five of the things that we are tasked with doing. What are you talking about? Yeah. You know, well, who signed this? Well, Jack, you signed this right here. Like you signed this and he did not know that that's what the actual mandate of the tour was. It feels like that kind of repeating itself right now in terms of the tour is tasked with taking media rights for all the players. And look, I have a lot of issues with how this is done. We have tried to film stuff with players. Sure. They've told us anytime you have a guy swinging a club in a video, they need to sign a waiver because here's how it works. Like we need these guys bought into this network, which we're calling the PGA tour, which we go out and market to sponsors. That money comes in and gets paid out to players. Right. And what I don't like about what is going on, especially from Phil is giving the tour and I'm using air quotes for those listening and on audio the 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 tour is not a personality it's not a person it's not a, a it's a it's a group of people that work for the pga tour that their mission is to like i i know a lot of people that work there they are not handing out big paychecks to to people that are like doing a lot of this stuff listen are the executives well paid yes a multi-billion dollar organization should have executives that are well paid that's not the issue i think there's a, there's bad information flowing into how the pga tour is quote, spending their money or distributing their money. And the tour has improved their communication of that to a degree that, you know, maybe is going, you know, they maybe shouldn't have had to. Like, I don't blame even necessarily blame the tour for that. I just think there's a ton of bad information going around with with people with bad intentions. Like, I think Phil is slandering the PGA tour to justify a potential move that he has either already made or will be making. That's what I see as the motive here. So he's throwing a bunch of bad information out kind of forcing the tour to scramble a little bit to communicate better, but really get in front of things that just aren't true. There was a golf.com article that had an, a, an exec anonymous executive quoted saying yeah. like, Hey, this, what he's saying is just not true. So in that regard, like I, I, I feel for the tour a little bit. And then when I say the tour, I mean the, the people that are working there that are like, dude, like we're not hogging this money. Like what, what like here's exactly what is coming in the door and exactly what we're spending on here. Like, we spend hundreds, over $100 million a year on the TPC network, but we have revenue that offsets that. So when, Phil, when you say 26% of revenue is paid out to players, like, yeah, that's also counting TPC money coming in the door. Do you have any idea how much it costs to run hundreds of golf tournaments around the world, tournament operations, tournament directors, all those grandstands that go up, all these things? Like, it's not like 55% of the money that comes in the door goes to the players. That's more than it maybe it sounds like. Um, and so... I think that, yes, there's been some action. The, the uh, player impact program, kind of the way they're distributing their money, at least how they're communicating that. Maybe the timeline for distribution has been bumped up, but there was a new media deal that has been signed with the PGA Tour yep. and CBS, NBC, ESPN Plus or ESPN that was already as scheduled. They didn't rush to do this That's because right. of know stuff that was going on from other leagues the purses were always going to go up in this time period i think they've done a much more clear job of like upfront saying like here is boom hey look big eyeballs right here players championship money going to 20 million dollars fedex cup money now going to 18 million like the championship is going to 18 like just putting it out there to be like whatever you guys are talking about is just not that accurate money's going up purse is going up you know, non-purse related bonus money going up, pension, I'm sure going up, all this stuff. Like this is what's happening. Stop being, uh, you're, you're, counter, you're counteracting our efforts to make you money by crying foul about all the things going on out here. So it's complicated times for sure. Yeah, it's, you know, the, the whole media rights deal and as a, as an, you know, an ancillary player, as somebody who was working for a company that desperately needed to retain the rights, you know, I, I, 
look, is being in that newsroom every day at Golf oh, Channel yeah. and, and the pressure that, sure. that, that came. And look, you know, Sally, I was in I was in meetings with the tour and and them talking about, you know, the, the presentation of content. And and, you know, you guys talk too much about the majors. And look, they had so much leverage. It was it, it was an uncomfortable feeling. And I wasn't the one who was sitting there having to make the decision. But the bottom line is with without the rights, Golf Channel's out of business. They are sure. their NBC you know, NBC Sportsnet Central Florida and that unit, it's already gone. But so they, they didn't have a choice and it was going right. to bust the, the, the whole business model of what Golf Channel was. And, the, you know, the inevitability of moving to Stanford was going to happen one way or the other. But but the fact is, is that I, I look, I think all of these reactions to the distribution of this money, whether it be in, in purse whether it be in, in the creation of the, the player impact program, whether it be the Wyndham's rewards, I can't even keep up. They, they are doing all they can to throw as much money as they can at these guys. And, and, and beyond what they already have in their coffers now, they're going to continue to do it. And that number of 55% runs very commensurate with other professional sports leagues, which, oh, by the way, are unionized. So, and, and I understand that's a different dynamic, but they are not underpaying their, their, their players. They're just not. Yeah, I, I think that there is a case to be made. You know, when Phil Mickelson and William McGirt tie for 10th together, they walk away with the same paycheck from the PGA Tour. I think there's a case to be made for Phil to raise his hand and say, like, yo, I'm putting butts in the seats and this guy's not. What's going on here, right? I, I think if he wanted to go that route, he'd have a much better case. Now, listen, that's counterintuitive to how the organization works as a 501c6. You keep pulling on the, on any string you end up with. It, the the PJ Tour is basically like a trade organization, right? It's a it's a it's a stage in which for players to perform and earn money, right? Now, the tour has gotten creative. The player impact program is rewarding guys like Phil who do put more butts in the seats, do bring more buzz to it. And like that's a, a, a step maybe they should have taken a long time ago, but the step that they have taken and the irony of this whole Phil thing is like, dude, you just won this money. You won $8 million from this. That's more than any other season you, you on in the history of your career on the PGA Tour that you've earned. And now you're you're blowing it up. We we know the money must have hit his bank account because he it was a very clear you know <laughs> snap of the fingers to his whole attitude towards things. And uh, yeah, I mean like you 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 said it, man. It's like the, the trickle down effect of all of this squeeze is like the Golf Channel. You know exactly how you said it. Like you are you're not in an independent situation. Like the Golf Channel was not able to be independent of this thing because you're a rights holder for the for the PGA Tour and the content and like that is just the nature of, you know, media, business, sports in general, right? And that's that's not to say like, you know, it, it, honestly, for, from my perspective, it makes, it made our job easier because it's like somewhere people can go to hear the independent conversation. For about sure. The, the independent conversation we're able to have no now. Question. And that's just, that's just the nature of it. And, you know, the trickle down of, you know, I maybe the right, I, you would know a heck of a lot more than I would about the move to Stanford and all that, but I mean, shilling out a couple hundred million dollars more annually from Comcast, NBC to the PGA Tour, like that, that money's going to have to come from somewhere. It's a publicly traded company, right? And it things are going to get more and more streamlined. And look what look at what happened there. It's just a the trickle down of all. That's where like the sympathy for the players just gets even less and less. Like look at all this stuff that's happening around here, just so you can cash up a, a a little bit bigger paycheck. It's just uh, uh it's just it's 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 testing my. Uh, fortitude as a sports fan, you know, and like yeah. we get into this, this all with this kind of appreciate, like watching Sahit Tagala yesterday, 
was like why I, I am a golf fan, right? Like that yep. was uh, watching a dude that like I'm rooting for and I want this personally for him. That is where I get like way more excited about that than I would if it was Ryan Palmer doing that, you know, <laughs> someone that's had a, a lengthy and, and, you know, a lot of money earned in their sure. career, right? So um, it, it's just really testing that these days. One of the things that you guys, uh, you know, look, you, you've all, and I've, I find this, I love this conversation because, you know, I, I always wanted to get into broadcasting. I was always curious, not only about um, the, the way it looked, but also the way it was done. And, and you guys are too. And, and you have been, and, and that has been, look, it's, I think it's, it must be a great feeling. And I'm, I'm finally feeling it now to some degree, uh, this, this righteous independence that comes with not being owned. And, and I was very, I, I love the job that I had. Uh, I don't have that job anymore, but you guys have always looked at, at the, at, at the, at the product itself and felt like it could be better. And if you look at it now, First of all, you guys have been complimentary of what CBS has done over the last year, and I agree with you. They've gotten more youthful. Uh, Seller Shy, you had on. I mean, I, I, that guy is, you know, it, it required new ideas. Um, what else needs to be done to take a product that is it's unique in every way? It's spread out over balls are in the air. You don't focus on one object. They're everywhere. And it's over a vast piece of property. And in the value of the people on the field, they're, they're playing independent of each other. What else has to get better? Hmm. I think, you know, we are on the path. And I, I would say this to so like looking at, at how, let's just say how CBS is presenting golf currently. I don't think we have a red flag issue currently in how that product is being presented. And that's a development of the last 12 to 15 months, I would say, you know, since Seller Shy has taken over. And to that, I'd say like, you know, probably what I would like to see isn't maybe necessarily commiserate with the golfing public at large and, you know, uh, what makes business sense, right? So I, I think a big missing gap in golf coverage is audio. Anytime that the announcers are talking, I watch a lot of golf on TV. Yep. It kind of washes over me at a certain point. I just don't need everything to be told to me that's on the screen. Yet when a player caddy combo, you know, starts up and they get the mics in there my eyes go towards the screen and i want to hear exactly what's being said and getting just you know if that means micing up players if that means you know madeline sagstrom on the lpga tour was mic'd up at the game bridge a couple weeks ago and i flipped that on it was just like hearing her caddy talk about the process for a golf nerd that brings me in right that just keeps my me focused that's what i really liked about the match is the like just hearing brooks and chase kepka talk about the lines and the reads that they're making and stuff like that that is what i think really draws people in i think and this won't change because we know that the, the the tv contracts are locked in for another eight years or whatever it is but the commercial load has always been enormous of course of course of course i understand why there are commercials we have commercials on our show I think it gets to the, it has gotten to the point with a lot of PGA tour coverage that, you know, anytime they get in a great flow, all right, back to commercial. All right. Good flow here. Back to commercial. And it's just really tough to uh, retain fans. I think in that, and I want the same thing that the tour probably wants or that the television partners probably want, which is a lot of people watching it. Like that makes me feel good about validated about my job, that it's something that people are watching. I felt like a lot of people were watching this past week. I think yeah. there are weeks that, you know, you get a lot of momentum going with this and, make no mistake when the players championship comes on TV on golf channel and NBC, it will be a different product. They take a different pride in that one. There's not as many commercials. They have uninterrupted hours and things like that. And that is what I think, you know, I mentioned formula one earlier, we've gotten into it big time. And 
I understand how lost leaders work and all of that. But like I, when I flip on a race on Sunday on ESPN over here in the United States, it is commercial free and it is two hours and I can't get up from the couch. And there is a, a certain amount of goodwill that is earned from that, that I think golf has been drawing on that goodwill from fans for a long, long, long time that I know plenty of people that do YouTube TV or whatever. They'll, they'll, they'll fire it up on, on recording and just watch it and then fast forward through all the commercials because they can't sit and watch it. So I, I don't expect that to change. I think uh, networks have gotten better about the programming around the commercials. There used to be a decent amount of fluff or wasted time in there that I feel like they're they're getting the hint of, of focusing on the live golf that I, I think the commercial load this past week was less noticeable than it has been in the past just because they've gotten more efficient in how they've done it. So I'm encouraged with what we're seeing. I think we're trending towards the area of at least being satisfactory um, from, from, a, from a gap that was pretty considerable a few years ago. They were losing track of people that had opportunities to win golf tournaments on Sunday. Uh, there was a really bad incident with Jordan Spieth at, uh, at the Genesis or whatever it was called at that time several years ago where he was not shown on Sunday until he was putting on 17 and he had a putt to win the tournament or something like that. It, and they <laughs> lost Brooks Kepko when he won in 2015 at the Waste Management. But there's some, there's some bad... Uh, there's a reason why we had major, major, major issues with it in the past, but it seems like, you know, we're with sellers shy. CBS is ready to take things into the next, uh, next era. Do you, do you think that, that Fox was the, I, I think that there are several things that they did that I, I look, I thought they got better. Um, I, I, I think it's, it is a hard ask to bring people and I'm not talking about the other and, and all the USGA championships are, gr- are great. You, you've qualified to believe you guys have played in a couple, uh, but the point is that the U S open is the meal ticket. And when you bring a team together one time a year and expect them to be great, that's hard. Um, and, and look, the more you do it, obviously I think the better you can be. What is the biggest thing that Fox did that you think had an effect on, on television at large? You know, I, I think Fox, listen, year one, 2015 U.S. Open, Chambers Bay, anyone involved with that will tell you it was an unmitigated disaster. It Correct. was bad. It was just a lot of, but that was the only way that year could have gone. It was, you know, they way overpaid for the rights and, uh, you know, they, they backed out of that contract since then. Cause it was not a great contract. It was great for the USGA. Um, but their response to that, their wound, uh, wick, wound licking after that was just noteworthy. They said, you know, we we've taken the heat, we've taken the fire, we're coming back stronger. And they came back in 2016 at Oakmont. They had a crazy rules issue go down with that. They covered it intently. They had, added pro tracers. They added technology, technology, technology. Whereas when it was just a CBS NBC race, it was almost like a, uh, an unwritten agreement between the two of like, Hey, we're not going to overspend on technology here. Like we're only competing against each other. <laughs> then this third guy came in and said, we're putting it everywhere. We're doing this. We're putting microphones in the cups. We're doing all this weird stuff. They had a robot cam one year or something. Some stuff worked, some didn't, but it forced everyone to improve. They threw drones up in the air. Now you, you don't tune into a CBS broadcast without seeing drones. It forced action from everyone. They expanded coverage windows. Coverage windows back in that time period were not nearly as big as they are, and they just were not afraid to try different stuff. And I think a lot of people never forgave them for year one. A lot of people still said Fox stinks the worst at covering golf ever. I just, I disagreed with that completely. I think Joe Buck is good at calling golf. I think a lot of people just hate Joe Buck for not a good reason. And, uh, and I, yeah, I do think that, you know, again, they signed up what ended up being a bad deal when the pandemic hit, they were looking for a way to get out of it. They got out of it. You know, NBC snatched it up for 30 cents on the dollar. And uh, it, it, look, you know, that's like, 
at no point during any of our gripes with television coverage have we said this is an easy job. I mean, you go right. in that production truck. I, I've been in a production truck. I get anxiety looking at all those screens. And I'm like, how do you keep track of what's going on in the tournament when you're trying to flip between all these TVs? I get all that. I do. I'm sympathetic to that. Um, I just think that there is a way to do it. And I think we're trying to, I think we're getting there. I really do. I think I don't like spending a large part of my job complaining about the television product, but at the same time, like that's what, that's our avenue into it, right? That's, I don't, we don't get to go out there and see every golf shot. We're relying on somebody to bring us the story, right? That's the only way we experience golf sitting at home. So I think it's incredibly important. I, I think that I agree with you. I thought technology, I, I'll never forget the first time I saw a fairway pro tracer at Chambers Bay, I went, I'll be a son of a bitch. That right there, that's going to force our hand at the time, NBC. Same with CBS. Like, I'd never seen anything other than a tee shot with Pro Tracer. Uh, and I'm, I, look, I th the, the drone footage, I, I've known Mark Loomis a million years. We actually went to school together. Uh, and now Mark is working for NBC. And I think that, you know, collectively, whether it be all their studio shows uh, and the way that they present things, I, I think that things are going to get better there. Uh, but I do believe that Fox was an agent for change and the other the other networks had to do some of the things technology and look i thought that pebble beach in 2019 it was a game-changing optical experience to see that place and now you see the way that that cbs showed it this year it can never be shown any other way no no and that's that's the thing too about you know standard you know, I, again, I don't know how camera operations work, any of that, but a lot of cameras tend to flatten out what is what you're what yes. you're looking at. Contouring and elevation changes just don't shine through. And when they put that drone out over the, the ocean and right around the seventh, I was just like, man, I've been there. I totally forgot how far downhill that was. And you just showed us that visual, the, like that eighth green, like the shot from eight, uh, you know, down the, over the chasm, over to nine, over to the eighth green. Like that's a that's an amazing place in the game of golf, and it takes like some different angles and a drone or something something in the sky to give you appreciation for that and uh yeah they, they i remember jim nance actually visited the booth uh in 2019 at the yes, u.s open at Pebble, and he was like he was like look at these drone images look at that i was like <laughs> yes exactly come on go back home to your bosses and tell them that you need this thing like the viewers at home need it like the drone costs like eight thousand bucks like i promise you cbs could afford that come on it's gonna you gotta pay somebody to fly it and all that stuff but it's not that expensive to do so um yeah I'm, I'm that's a great great development in the world of golf it is i want to read something that you said in 2015 uh, uh -oh. and i want to oh, i want gosh. you to add, I, I want you to tell me uh <laughs> whether whether you've amended it uh or not and and i don't know whether you have or not um you said that and this was about golf journalists and writers. You said they're being judged on how many people go to the website and balancing the line between journalism and trying to get clicks. And that's why we're able to operate in the function we do. If we were, if we were revenue driven, we would be doing the same thing. Hmm. Have you guys changed at all? That's interesting. Cause at that time, this was, I was probably the second year we were, had even started a website and we were doing it strictly as a hobby, right? We, yeah. we did this, we all had jobs in different parts of the world. And, you know, I, I had such a little understanding of how media value worked, any of that, but I knew that when you click on an article and there's a bunch of ads on it, that's how journalists, you know, create revenue. And it felt like at that at the time felt like a race to the bottom for me. It just felt like, how do you go about like creating the best possible content without littering something with ads or, and, and, you know, having a ton of ads on the website. And 
I we're doing a podcast at the time. I had no idea that eventually the podcast would be revenue driving for us. That was just not a mindset at all. And, you know, we, I mean, also at the time we had maybe, maybe 500 people listening to it. So <laughs> it was not going to be revenue driven, but you know, a couple of years later, we, you know, start getting players come on. We start, you know, having sponsors start to call us and say like, Hey, we'd like to be involved in your show. You know, we don't want to interrupt how the show is going to work, but like, we'd love to be involved in any way. You guys have some serious momentum going. And it took a lot. There was some decision-making that, you know, had to be made in that time frame of one, are we going to, you know, quit our jobs that we've been working at for a long time and do this as a full-time job? If so, how are we going to do that? How are we going to maintain whatever our ethos is, whatever our mission statement is, and also get revenue to run a business at the same time? And it was a, it's been a, it's not been a straight path on that line. It's, it's, we're still learning how to do that, I think. But I think for us, it, it involves setting up it did setting up a set of core values and a mission statement to say, and I think our mission statement, something along the lines of, you know, use our access to inform and entertain avid golf fans. Like, all right, view everything through that lens. So if we're bringing in a sponsor to do this, does whatever content we're going to create on that front, does it meet that goal? And is that, does that provide revenue for us? That's great. Then that that's, we should do that thing. And that's the lens at which we viewed things. We, I can say this pretty confidently. We would do things differently if we cared greatly uh, if we only cared about the number of people that would listen or interact with our stuff, we could do things a lot more clickbaity. Listen, do we make trailers of stuff? Are we trying to drive people to the stuff that we create? Absolutely. Sure. Like we want people to be engaged, but we have also tried to dedicate ourselves to the people that are going to follow our content, are going to listen to our show, are going to watch our videos. We make stuff for them. We don't make stuff for the people that we haven't reached yet. Right. We're not trying to, if we reach new fans, great. We want them to kind of get involved with our in our ecosystem, but we don't make things for. Uh, I, I one thing we've been critical about with what, what the PGA Tour has done. I always feel like they're trying to reach a non-existent fan. They're trying to, you know, they're not delivering. In the past, they've not delivered for hardcore golf fans. They're trying to put a Fortnite ten in, and they're trying to do all these <laughs> other things to bring people in, and not delivering for the hardcore. We don't ever want to lose our bearing on, you know, how to, uh, you know, how to deliver for our core audience. So. I, you know, I, I wrote that in 2015. I, I, I see where I was going with that. I felt like, I still feel like it's an incredibly hard thing to do. You know, how do you deliver content that, you know, is worthwhile and needs to be done yet, you know, also pays the bills. It's a, it's a, it's a squeeze. It's a really, really tough thing to do in that regard. And I don't know how, if, if we hadn't kind of found our voice, I guess, on the podcast front, I don't know how we would have done that. We're not experts on that front. It's just, it's difficult. And that's where, like, you mentioned this too, maintaining our independence has been a, a driver for us too. Cause if we were, you know, people, some people were saying like oh, golf channel is going to buy you probably like, and, and I was like, how, how would that work? Like how in the world would, like, no, seriously, like, how would that work? Like, I don't know how to, it wouldn't. How, yeah. How do you do that? So we've managed to create our own ecosystem where we are honestly still just like saying what we think I, I we've not had to change what we say about anything. You know, we have partners, and, you know, our partners sponsor certain players. None of them come to us and say, hey, you can't be critical of so-and-so this week. You could probably put two and two together if we were talking, because we've talked about one of those guys a lot on the show. Like, that's not how it works. Like, it, you know, we're still going to be independent and say what we think, because that's where all of our value comes from. And, uh, I, you know, a lot of people come to me for advice on how to do things, how to get into the golf media world. I'm like, honestly, I'm probably the wrong guy to ask. I got, <laughs> we got super lucky. Like, I, I'm a believer in luck is where skill and opportunity meets. And, and we, we have some skill and have taken advantage of it, but like things have just kind of worked out very well for us where we're able to exist in this ecosystem that, 
you know, it might not, a couple decisions a different way may not have worked out as well for us. You know, I assume, you know, everyone says, well, he worked for KPMG, he had a good job. I think when a company sends somebody to work overseas, that, that I think that that shows an investment in that person. Um, and you worked in Amsterdam for almost three years. Um, and you guys created the Twitter account in 2013. And I don't know if, if the pivot point was when you quit your job and said, you know what, I think we can do this. And, and subsequently, you know, the other guys did as well. Um, was that the pivot point or was it was it getting partnerships with Callaway and BMW and, and representation with I know who your agent is. I mean, mm-hmm. he's not a schmuck. I mean, these are these are I mean, <laughs> you guys. Are, <laughs> 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 the, 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 this is not you are not you're not talking to, you know, a five and dime store uh, in Neptune Beach. I mean, this is big time partnership. What was the big pivot for you guys? It- you know, it's an easy, it's an easy thing to point to now. And it's, I, I would, uh, the second time Roy McElroy came on the podcast, I think it was February 1st, 2017. Um, he said something on there. He said, you know, I was like, dude, first of all, I was super confused as to why this guy was, had chosen us to be where his outlet was coming from. Like it was kind of out of nowhere. We had formed a relationship maybe at the Ryder cup. Really it was the first time we'd ever met. And I was just amazed. So I asked him something along the lines of like, what, what, what are you doing here? Like, why, why do you keep giving us, you know, all this business? And he said something like, I think you guys are the future of golf media and anything I can do to support that, I would. And like literally in that conversation before we'd hung up, I was like, I think this might be my career now. Like, I think like I, I just for have to have one of that top players in the game say that was like an endorsement of uh, that. I, I, I didn't I, I could not have comprehended that. I was living on the other side of the world, as you mentioned. Nothing I was doing was ever interacting in person. It was all digital. You know, it was all, you know, via the phone or whatever it might be. And I just, I had trouble grasping. We all had trouble grasping, like, how big this thing was becoming. It just, because it was so unexpected. And so, you know, my, that was February of 2017. And then my secondment in in Amsterdam was ending June 30th of 2017. So, you know, five months from, from that point. And I honestly had not thought about quitting my job at all to until that that had happened. You know, a month after that interview was when the first sponsor started calling to say, we'd like to support your show. How can we do that? And we kind of scrambled to like put a little business together. Like again, we our goal was not really business related with this. It was a hobby. It was for fun. We did it for four plus years just as a little creative outlet. And, you know, it was kind of like learning, learning how we could, you know, turn this into a business. It was kind of an inflection point of like, all right, well, I could go back to, I should go back to work in Chicago for a year. That's what my contract said I should do, you know, and then maybe a year from that date, um, that's when I'll quit and we'll start full time. And I kind of had asked myself, I was like, well, if if the plan is to be full time, you know, where are you going to be on July 1, 2018, if you quit now versus if you quit on July 1, 2018, you're going to be way behind if you stay another year, you're going to be behind whatever, you know, and I hate using this cheesy quote, but it's actually from the office. It's a Pam Beasley quote, but it stuck with me. She says something like Jim had this great quote of you'd rather be halfway up the ladder, sorry, you'd rather be at the bottom of a ladder you want to be on than halfway up one you don't. And like that kind of stuck with me. It was kind yeah. of like, okay, well, I got to climb down this ladder at some point. Like I might as well go down now and um, we can try to build this thing up. And Took the risk, moved back in, you know, moved back to the States, quit my job, moved in with my parents for six months and just spent spent all day making content, trying to, you know, figure out a way to come up with partnerships. I admit I spun my wheels for several months. I didn't know what I was supposed to do. I didn't know, you know, it was all happening very quickly. And 
we brought in DJ Pihalski, who had worked for Scratch uh, Golf and had worked for the PGA Tour. Um, he was kind of starting his own creative, um, you know, uh, out, uh, you know, creative business of his own. We kind of brought him in part time. He's now full time with us, and he helped us so much. Just kind of get our get our get our shit together, for lack of a better term, of like. Do you guys need like a mission statement? You need a brand, like you need meetings. You need to like, if you want this to be a real company, like you got to like do all of these things. Whereas we just, you know, we're trying to kind of fly in by the seat of our pants and, you know, day by day, month by month, hour by hour, a lot of nights, you know, on the computer till midnight, trying to figure stuff out and put plans together and things like that. It just kind of slowly started to take shape and it's evolved a lot you know, over the years and slowly one by one got other guys started quitting their job and coming in full time, the more sponsors we added and the more revenue we had coming in. And, you know, it's, uh, it, I, I'm proud of it just because I think we've not lost our way along the lines of, you know, the more business success we've had, the, the, I, I, I would say the content is paid off in that, you know, the camera quality looks better. Audio quality is better. The guests are better. Like the con, you know, that is directly invested back into the content. And we, and so from that vein, I feel very good about what we're able to deliver from a final product to our, to our followers. Yeah. And I don't, I don't say this to patronize you or the, or the, or the guys. Um, I I'm proud of you. Look, I, I, like I said, I'm, I'm really curious in, in where media is going uh, yeah. and how fragmented it's become over the last, you know, five, six years and, and, and what is next. And the fact is, and you tell me, I, and, and you've said that you feel like your, your righteousness uh, is, is in place. Have you ever felt in the last year or two that you pulled any punches? Because I still feel like you, and, and it's like you guys have an inherent responsibility to the people who love you to, to be gritty and, and, and to maintain that. Uh, do you ever have conversations with the guys and go, you know what? I think we were soft last week or we were, you know, have you ever had a, a, a thought to yourself or with the other guys and said, holy shit, you know what? We're, we're, what are we doing here? All the time, you know, it is a constant balance. It, it, going back a bit, you know, what's a, a, a good North Star has always been. I kind of back in the day, I kind of thought we were a comedy website. I kind of thought we were comedy, <laughs> and I'm not a comedian. Like, listen, I've landed some good ones over the years, but like, I'm, I, it's stressful to be try to be funny all the time. Like, it's not that easy. And and Big Randy, one of our guys, said, you know, I don't care as much about it being funny as long as it's real. And that was like a huge burden release for me of like, ah, oh, God, okay, it doesn't, not everything has to be like a big joke, like, just say what you think. And that has been, again, a, a great North Star. I think, you know, sometimes we are, a lot of times we are a bit concerned with how people will take things, right? If I say something that's like meant as a joke, like people might take it very, very seriously and not think it's funny and, or take something I've said and twist, like Twitter, that's where like I, the less Twitter I could do, the more podcast. Asking I could do that's a fair trade because you're you get a chance to to you know person to hear the inflection in your voice and you don't get met with so many just you know non sequiturs in reply but yeah we do a game plan to say like all right is this worth going after is this worth how are we going to tackle this like we put an agenda together we put the questions that go into it and we say like all right we need to be make sure that we are um you know we, we're hard on this we're you know we make sure we don't do this blah 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 and we're, we're thoughtful with it right at the end of the day it's it's published it's it's not um as off the cuff as people may think there's there's definitely times where we like you know what let me start that over and we'll edit that part out and just to make sure we get it right like we want to be it is a free-flowing conversation but at the same time it's something you want to be able to stand behind i don't want to wake up monday morning and be like ah, i didn't mean what i said last night like we we believe in what we ultimately say and it's you know, it's, it's an interesting thing of like 
balancing your relationships with players and the potential guests that you may have versus like being true to that audience. Right. And like, maybe have we poured gas, you know, have we nuked our chances of Phil coming on the podcast? Probably, but like, it wasn't worth protecting. If like one, if we're, if his actions are not worth protecting in our mind and we can't call him out, we've lost all of our value. Like everything, our, every reason our audience would tune into our show. If, if we met with like, if we started the show with, yeah, we can't really say anything bad about Phil this week. Boom. It's gone. It's all over. Everything's over. So you yes, at times have we lost some relationships with people that we've had to be critical of yet at the same time, there are players that, you know, I've talked to like, Hey, I, you know, I was pretty critical about you after the British open. Like, you know, are we, are we okay? And he's like, man, I actually kind of needed to hear some of those things. I really appreciate you saying that. And like, those are the guys that unsurprisingly are the guys we end up rooting for and supporting and keep coming back on our show. Whereas, you know, there's definitely guys you've experienced this. I'm sure a lot of guys are sensitive, super, super sensitive. Yep. And I'm pretty sensitive. I'll be honest. Like I'm sensitive if, if someone's critical of me and I, I, I don't forget slights and things like that. So I understand how that works. And so it's an interesting balance, but again, the North star is like, what are we doing for the audience? What are we doing? I, I don't want our show to ever get to the point where people feel like it's all, you know, whitewashed and, and not what we think. That's the only thing that we, we, you know, stay true to is like, we're going to say what we think. But a couple more things before I get you out of here. One of the things is women's golf. Uh, mm -hmm. You guys made a commitment to, to talking about women's golf, covering women's golf, going to events. You guys were at the Solheim cup. Um, and, and sometimes, and I've, I've heard this from some media members is, is if they want credit for covering women's golf, it's not a cause. It, it is, it is, it's a professional entertainment property and, and you can, you can consume it to the degree that you want to. Uh, I, I find, I find the women in the game, uh, to, to have a balance about, about, you know, not only themselves, but about what they're doing to a degree. And, and part of that has to do with maybe the trappings that the game has or hasn't provided them. Um, what about you guys committing to women's golf the way that you have? I think you went to the KP, you went to the women's PGA, what, three, four years ago for the first time? I've been to, I went to first time in 2018. I went again in 2019. And then we went to this past year as well. Pandemic years, we were a bit affected by that. But it, uh, I, I had a PGA tour experience as a kid i had the i lived in double i grew up in Dublin, ohio yep. i went to the memorial tournament every year i got to see tiger woods phil brad faxon billy andrew i just that was my impressionable time period i grew up with that and it was a huge driver for my interest in professional golf and i did not have that on the women's side i remember watching annika on tv i remember the day she shot 59 i, I remember that but it just wasn't instilled in me and you know, we didn't cover a lot of LPGA Tour golf at all until we started doing this full time. And that was just out of ignorance. It was out of one, a lack of time and two out of I'd never really been to an LPGA event. I don't think maybe I had as a kid. I don't remember if I was or had. And we got invited to go go out to the Kia Classic and we mm -hmm. played in the Pro-Am with Jane Park and Tiffany Joe. And like my work, like, it just like blew me away at how one how opposite all of our interactions were with the LPGA players to normal PGA tour players. There wasn't agents protecting, you know, or, you know, getting in the way there wasn't the, the PGA tour getting in the way of everything you're trying to do content wise on site. LPGA was like, Hey, how can we help? Well, you want a story about this? Here's a story that you cannot, you know, they never say like, don't repeat it, but like, they will say some things are like, holy, did that just come out of your mouth? Like, oh, yeah. But they understand the value of like a pro-am entertainment because they understand and the Mike one instilled in them, you know, the entertainment aspect for the people that write checks or the people that are covering the game, give them, you know, what they want. It's going to help 
all, uh, you know, rise everyone on this tour. And it was just, it was super eye-opening. So I go home and I star two players that I met uh, on my app and I follow them week to week. And we just got super into it. Like it's not something that we, you know, a lot of people would say that we're, you know, we're, we're first forcing it down people's throats. Again, I go back to almost everything I've said today is like, it's interesting to us. Like, and I think yeah. it is a, it is something that I think if people gave a better chance can get into follow week to week, you don't have to tune in every listen. Like I think there's issues in covering women's golf, maybe even more to the extent than covering men's golf. They have less cameras out there. You know, they get bad TV windows. It's, it's, it's difficult. It's challenging times, but it's improving. They're on more network coverage this year. It's something that's improving year over year. And it's worth following. It's it's some great. They get the best players on the LPJ tour get together more often than on the men's tour because they don't have tournaments every single week. Yep. If you there's a tournament on Nelly Corda and Jessica Corda and and Brooke Henderson and Yuka Sasso and Lydia Ko and Jin Young Ko are probably playing in it. Like and right. that is that is interesting. And I I find it's something that I, I struggle to kind of relay to people is how uh, I hate I hate saying this. I do because it it even sounds patronizing. It's like how talented they are at golf. Like you can't even fathom it. Like you really can't. I mean, I've played with Danielle Kang and I can hit it 50 yards past her off the tee and she'll smoke me by 12 shots. And like, you have to go home and look in the mirror and be like, how, do, how does this happen? Like you, like it, it's just amazing the control at which they have over their golf ball and the skills. And I, I've enjoyed, I just truly enjoy following the storylines along with it. I've enjoyed following Yuka Sasso's rise. And I think she's destined for a world number one. And uh, I, it just, it's, it's a lot more, it's a, it's a, a little bit more pure uh, style of professional golf, I think, than men's at, at the time. But, and the, uh, and I, the Solheim I, Cup for you guys yeah. to be there and, and compare it because you guys were at, you guys were also at Whistling Straits. What, what was different about it? What was, was there things that were better? Um, it, it, the accessibility for people is, yeah. and that's one thing I tell people, you know, if you have sons or daughters or for you personally, take them to an LPGA event because you can get up close to whatever you want to see Ryder cup is definitely definitely not the case with solheim cup there's a lot of people there but if you want to see something you're going to see it like and you're going to be a part of a pretty rowdy atmosphere at the same time you're going to be a part of the peak event in in women's golf really in terms of atmosphere a stadium surrounding that first team music playing pumping up the crowd like it's just a memorable experience it is and you know the the you know the regular lpga tour events they're not memorable in that way for crowd noise but it's memorable because like if you want to go follow Ann Van Dam and like watch her hit tee shots, you can stand right behind her and watch her. And she, she'll probably talk to you during the round. Like if you bring like a young junior out, like they will sign for something in the middle of a round or give you a ball or high five you. And like, that is, uh, you know, it's going back to like not having that when I was an impressionable kid, like you can have, you can give your kids that experience or a good personal experience yourself. I just genuinely enjoy going to their events. All right. I'll, I'll get you out of here with these five quick questions. Who's the best announcer on televised golf? Mm, best announcer on televised golf. Put me on the spot here. Um, can I say I can't say Phil Mickelson? That doesn't count. When he went in the booth, it was uh, great for the match. It was great. He, it's and he did it during the PGA Championship. Oh, he I made think. he made Faldo look so small. Oh my gosh, he put him in a body bag. Uh, Phil would be my answer, you know, despite the, the earlier conversation we had. I know he's not a, a regular announcer. Um, I always like Brad Faxon when he was on the U.S. Yeah. Open coverage. Um, I think uh, you gosh. guys are pro Brandel, right? You 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 appreciate him, don't you? I appreciate him on television. I have a lot of issues with a lot of his takes, especially as it comes to distance and, and things like that. But I he 
he follows, you know, he is as independent as you possibly can be in that environment. And I, I do respect him for that. I think, and this is everyone, uh, you know, I don't know if he's my favorite announcer in all of golf because it's, it's, he's, he's young in the game, but Colt knows is a rising star. Yes, I think it's a, it's a great <clears throat> voice for, you know, relatable young people that want to not even that young. I mean, I'm 35. I don't consider myself young anymore, but for our generation, like that's the voice, the kind of voice that, you know, CBS coverage needs. And I think he does a great job with it. Uh, he likes to, he likes to snipe at me on Twitter all the time. I won't, I won't hold that against him as we're evaluating him on the television uh, broadcast because no, I think he's great. He, yeah, I agree. He's he, two things. He's 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 got an ease about doing it, and yep. and to be able to to say something, you know, and he's not intending to be funny all the time, but either you know that makes sense. You learn something in ten or twelve seconds when you know he's got somebody barking in his ear. Five, four, three, two, one. Uh, he he has an ease with that, and it's natural. And I agree with you. I, I think he's very good. All right, what can is I most- say this? Yeah, can I? Well, you you know you have this experience too. That that is uh, those jobs are way harder than people realize. <laughs> like stuff going on in your ear. I don't want that job. If somebody says to you, "Hey, twelve seconds, be insightful, quick, to the point, maybe funny at the same time," go take it away. I you've heard me ramble for the last hour. I can't get my take in in, you know, in a short period of time. That's a hard hard job to do. And I don't want to be a television broadcaster. I don't, I, I, I don't want to have to handle that. It's just, it's way more challenging than, than a lot of people realize. Do I, do I think that there are some people that are glaringly bad at it? Yes, I do. <laughs> but, uh, but I do know, I do appreciate that it's a hard job. All right. Um, you guys do a lot on, on golf courses. Uh, you travel. What is the most overrated course in America? So I'm trying to see, I'm also trying to budget in here to make sure I don't offend anyone with this. Uh, <laughs> I hate to do Tory because I don't know if it is overrated anymore. I I I I think that you know the the take with Tory is that it could be so much better than it is, and it's an extremely boring style of golf. The views are incredible, so I don't know if it is overrated. But I just think that there's so much more to skinny fairways with bunkers on each side of the landing area and just rough everywhere. And you know the greens I think have improved over the years, but just deep Reese Jones bunkers around people love that course. And I, I, I recognize that, you know, that it's one of the top public golf courses you can play and it's probably worth the dollar, you know, that it costs to play for in town or out of town because of those views and that setting. But I think it's an extremely overrated golf course yet. Also at the same time, I think it's the rating of it is starting to be realized by a lot of people. Yeah. You know, and I've always, you know, the thing about Reese, he's a big North Carolina basketball fan and I grew up a Carolina fan and he knows Dean Smith really well or did. Uh, and I've had great conversations with him, but I remember walking on, I, I went to do a walk and talk with Kerry Haig at Atlanta athletic club. And I went, this is, this is awful. Like this is, <laughs> I, I mean, I really, I, I was like, this is, I wouldn't, I wouldn't walk across the street to play this place. Just not, just not good. And a lot of people, a lot of people that experience doesn't matter to, if you put a grand stage like Atlanta athletic club in front of people with really nice grass and some rolling terrain. And it, it honestly, the niceness of a golf course is what a lot of people care about. If it, if it sure. looks pretty to the eye. I think, you know, overly penal approaches like that to golf, I think are not fun for the, like golf is really, really freaking hard. I think we have the balance of hard to easy courses completely flipped. I think 80% are hard and 20% are easy. I think we should completely flip that. 
good players can have a great time on easy golf courses. We went to Mammoth Dunes this past year up at Sand Valley. Super easy golf course. Uh, in a four ball, we made 13 birdies and an eagle in the back nine alone. The ball, it just funnels balls onto the green, and we had a blast. And a high handicapper is going to have a blast doing that. Golf should do anything in its power to restore that balance, to get that balance closer to neutral. Because right now, I would say that the best players should have to travel far and wide to find the hard golf courses. The rest of it, let it be easy. I mean, what, what, there's just no reason why it needs to be hard. All right. The, the most underappreciated interview on tour. Um, I, I, instinct was Joel Damon, but I think he's starting to get appreciated a little bit more yeah, and more. He he's, is. He, that's that's Cats out, out there. Out of the bag. Cantlay on his way, I think, yes. a little bit. Yep. Cantlay in a good long form is has a lot to say. And in the right environment, I think it's, it's you know, there's not a ton of excitement in the voice. Uh, you know, uh, he strikes a lot of people as boring, but I think he's pretty interesting guy. Charles Howell, great interview. Yep. The guy will give you, you know, a, a ton of nuggets like that. Um, yeah, I, I, I get I feel like I'm, I'll I'm give drawing you one. blanks now. I'll give you one. Yeah. And I, I don't think you guys have talked to him. And he, he you know, he, he doesn't his schedule now. I don't know what his status is. Johnson Wagner. Now, Johnson yeah. lives here in Charlotte, where I am. And I've been around him a little bit. Very bright guy. Very interesting background. His, his father taught at West Point. Um, he, he, I, Johnson's a very interesting guy. Hmm. Yeah, I've not talking, talked with Johnson. But, yeah, it's amazing how often it happens where here, here's one. Jason Bone. Like I, yes. I, you know, known that name for a long time. And, you know, we kind of got set up to talk with him. We didn't really even necessarily ask for it. And I'm like, Jason Bone, what are we going to ask him? He's been <laughs> back on because he's the best storyteller maybe I've ever run into. So that that's my answer for underappreciated interview. Jason Bone is that guy. Best hole in one celebration when he won oh, that million bucks and made incredible. him. Uh, he would still be able to take the million now because of NIL and play at the University of <laughs> Alabama. And he was running. I remember he ran from the tee. He had tube socks on that were right below his knee. They were fantastic. All right. The last time you paid retail for a round of golf. Oh, I do that all the time. Oh, Jack stop Beach, it. Jacksonville Beach Municipal Course. That's, so, so, that's not retail. What's, what's that? How's that not retail? What's retail mean? <laughs> like a, a real retail experience. Jack's okay. Beach is what? Like 36 bucks? If you're walking, it's 27. Okay. But, uh, <laughs> Um, full retail round of golf, like a couple Um, hundred bucks, couple hundred bucks. Gosh, I'm so punchable for not knowing this off the top of my head. I'm honestly, I haven't played a lot. I haven't traveled and played a lot of golf in recent years with the pandemic. Um, so, yeah, and when we do, it's been been paying retail. Well, we pay retail maybe more often than you might think, really? but it, usually when we travel, it is something that is arranged, right? We're doing it for some kind yeah. of filming or content more so than I don't take get to take a lot of trips now where, you know, I'm just playing golf, not for content purposes. It's just, we're, we're just busy enough to, to that point where it, you know, that doesn't quite work. Um, gosh, I really, you know, it, it happens all the time with, you know, practice rounds and stuff that for tournaments that I play, I got to pay for, you know, play, pay for practice rounds, things like that. But, um, it, it, I'll put it, it's been a long time since I paid like over a hundred dollars for a round of golf, just because I honestly just haven't played a lot of that over the last couple of years. But, um, I mean, there, there, some of the trips we've taken Cape kidnappers, Kari cliffs, like I paid for the, some of those rounds, you know, it's not always free and comped, but, uh, I love I love asking people that question. I should be way more prepared to answer it. I don't think I, I don't think I answered it very well. But uh. all right, last thing I want you to answer this not only for yourself but for the guys as well. 
who has the best or who has the, the go-to cuss word or phrase that is the best among the five of you on the golf course? <laughs> uh, and, and we're allowed to say any cuss yes, words on whatever, the show? Is that yes. right? uh, Tron will sometimes, when he's trying to get something going, maybe he's bogeyed two of the last three, he'll stand up over a tee shot and he'll just go, Come on, TC, you little motherfucker. Like he <laughs> talks himself into it. That's his pump up right before he goes to hit it. And that's my favorite. It draws a laugh every single time. <laughs> Listen, I, I think that the only time you and I have met was when they kind of opened the, the performance center at Sea Island. That's right. Yeah. Um, and and I, I really appreciate you taking the time. I look forward to having another conversation soon enough. Thank you for doing this. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. This was a great conversation. Really enjoyed it. Really appreciate Chris taking the time. I'm impressed by what they built. And from my viewpoint, and I've paid attention from the beginning, they haven't compromised much. They've just gotten bigger and bigger and bigger, and their voice uh, is being heard by everybody in the industry of golf. Next week, right here, Trevor Immelman, the President's Cup captain for the international side, and also Emma Carpenter's first show will be next week with Cole Hammer from the University of Texas. Big week for us here on Five Clubs. Thank you to everybody involved, and most importantly, thank you to you for listening.